0: So as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 24, we come to the topic of marriage and divorce. We went through this passage verse by verse on Tuesday night, and tonight, well, we did chapters 24 and 25 tonight, we're just going to get these five verses of marriage, marriage and divorce, and the first year of marriage. So we're going to see tonight a positive, a negative, and a positive. We're going to let Jesus be over all of it, but our context tonight clearly in the text is marriage and divorce. So chapter 24, verse 1, we read this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she's departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, Or if the latter husband dies who took her as a wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken." Now, this passage seems familiar. It is because it is referred to in the New Testament. And so you can turn there if you like with me or I'll read it to you. But to Matthew chapter 19 in the New Testament. And then also it's in Mark 10, but I'm just going to read Matthew chapter 19 to you. As we've seen so many times with Deuteronomy, we've said this. Deuteronomy is referenced almost 80 times in the New Testament. It's an amazing book and it's referenced by Jesus a number of times. And so we get a lot of New Testament understanding, shedding light on the book of Deuteronomy, which is super helpful because Scripture, of course, interprets Scripture. So in Matthew chapter 19, we read this historical record where this passage we just read was quoted to Jesus. Now, it came to pass, chapter 19, verse 1 of Matthew, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, that as he was departing from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. So he's got this wonderful ministry going on. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, this, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, Permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And his disciple said to him, Well, if such is the case of the man from with his wife, it's it's better not to marry. And then from there, Jesus went on to teach about celibacy and eunuchs and stuff like that the mark record that goes with this so the mark text that records historically the same text we just read in matthew is shorter but in that we get the additional insight that jesus said if a woman divorces her husband so that gives us insight that the divorce isn't just limited to a man divorcing his wife but actually jesus talked about a woman divorcing her husband for the same thing sexual immorality And so as we come to this text now, back to Deuteronomy, with that New Testament understanding of Jesus quoting Genesis chapter 2, literal Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, how God brought them together in marriage. The two became one. They became a family unit. And then future family units would be established when the father left the parents and began a new family unit as he joined to his wife and began the next generation of family. This is, of course, God's design and order for the family unit, the man and the woman, a monogamous relationship, just those two together, enjoying the journey, sharing the journey, producing children, be fruitful and multiply, is what it said in Genesis. And that's obviously not for everybody. We know that, we understand that, but that's the context. And so the family unit is a safe haven of a man and a woman and the children they raise. And eventually those children get old enough to get married, like Jack's gonna do in a couple of weeks, and he's leaving his father and mother, and he's gonna join and cleave to his wife Hannah in just fifteen days. Our worship leader is getting married. And so he's a great example that he's been raised by a wonderful family, Greg and Tammy, by the time has come where he says goodbye to mom. He's got the place up there in L.A., and he's getting married. I'm going to the wedding. I'm very excited about it with my wife. And that's how it's designed to be in God's order and his purpose is this beautiful thing with the two young people, in this case, getting married. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be an amazing day. And they're going to begin their journey. So he's no longer under that covering, if you will, nor is Hannah anymore under the covering of her family, his fiancé. And this is how it goes. So Jesus took these religious leaders back to the original marriage of Adam and Eve and said, this is the way it's meant to be. This is the ideal. And this is what God has in mind. And you notice also when they went to Jesus, they said that Moses commanded a certificate of divorce. Of course, divorce is never commanded. It's permitted. So like they so often did the Pharisees, they added to God's word. They twisted it to their own reckoning. We should also note that rabbinical writings from the first century tell us that they interpreted Moses's decree to give a or command a certificate of divorce would be for any reason. So they even cited if you didn't like the way breakfast was made, you would divorce your wife, which, of course, is appalling and offensive. If you're a woman here tonight and I would be offended, too, I'm offended that men would think that way. But that's how they interpret it in those extra rabbinical writings of how to look at Deuteronomy 24 and how they could apply it. So they give themselves this full leeway. I just don't like my wife. I didn't like breakfast. That's my excuse. I'm divorcing her. I'm leaving her. That's how they saw it. They saw it as Moses commanding it. And so they came to Jesus, we saw in the text, to test him on this topic. And Jesus set it straight, taking them back to Genesis 2, before sin, Adam and Eve, the way it was meant to be, the subsequent generations of family units, And God's design and order. And that's what we saw from Jesus. So now we come back to our text in Deuteronomy 24. And as we look at this text. And we look at the the law concerning marriage and divorce. With that understanding coming from Jesus. I'm going to bring out our first thing I want to point out from this text. Is the very first words of chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her. When a man takes a wife and marries her. That's, That's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. Now, most of us here are older and have been married or married and divorced or married and widowed or different things. But we need to understand that that's a good thing. For back in Genesis chapter 2, when Adam was alone, God said, it is not good that he is alone. And he made from Adam his helper, his wife to be by his side. And he said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And they were the perfect man and the perfect woman. They're beautiful, they were naked, and they're unashamed. So they had the physical attraction, they had the emotional attraction, and the intellectual attraction, and they had fellowship with God. It's the highest, the highest plane humanity's ever been on in a marital situation was the very first our the head of our race, Adam and Eve, when they came together. That was it's been all a degeneration since then because of sin and the effects of sin. But of course. Marriage can be a wonderful and beautiful thing, which many of us and most of us know either through experience or by observation. But it's not an easy thing. That's why we say, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, is sickness and in health. Like that's those are just cute sayings, you young people. Those things, they they're the real deal. And we the older you get, the more you understand that. But when a man takes a wife and he marries her, so we understand that not every man takes a wife. And so even in that Matthew text, Jesus went on to teach about men who are celibate or whatever, not married. The Bible addresses widows who are no longer married. It addresses uh, people that have been divorced who are no longer married. It, it addresses men and women who are singles. It addresses a believer being married to a non-believer and the non-believer leaves. And then that also releases a believer from the marriage. And as I say Tuesday night, I say tonight, the tricky thing there is you want to make sure as a believer, you're not driving away the unbeliever as an excuse to be released from that marriage, which I've seen happen many times in 33 years of ministry. So there is permission to be released from a marriage. If non—if you're a believer married to a non-believer and they don't want to be with you and they leave you, you are released from the marriage in that situation. Now, it also tells us in Corinthians that if someone's single, not to seek to be married. And if you're married, not to seek to be unmarried. is common sense. And we'd also apply common sense, of course, too, that knowing the heart of God, though not clearly defined in Scripture, but the heart of God in the totality of Scripture is a marriage is never meant to be a physically abusive relationship. And the Bible does permit separation for times and seasons. And so that's a whole other thing that we need to at least put there for a second. But that's not the point of our text tonight. But we need to put it out there. So when we think of wives, of and husbands, th- that is not the ideal at all. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But we do realize there's people not everyone's meant to be married. Not everybody gets married. Ross was here for years as a deacon. He wasn't married. He's a wonderful single man. that did so many wonderful things for the church as he served our youth group for over 15 years as a deacon to the youth, and he was never married. and It freed him up to do a lot of things. Matt Erickson, one of our deacons, he was here for over 10 years, wrote our children's ministry curriculum. Wonderful man of God, one of the sweetest men I've ever met in my human experience. He was called to be a school teacher in Vietnam, went to Vietnam, served the Lord for a couple years, met a wonderful Vietnamese woman and married her. And I, he doesn't ever post social media and it had been quiet for two years. And all of a sudden, here's something from his wedding day. It was so beautiful. It made us so happy. If a man takes a wife, the Bible tells us if a man gets a wife, he gets a good thing. So if you're single, that's a good thing. And if it seems incomplete, it just might be because we're designed to be complete. As the Ecclesiastes says, two is better than one, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. And that seems to imply marriage. But the one that's single is married to the Lord, we're told, and their first love is for the Lord. So I think of people like Sarah Yardley in England, serving the Lord over there all these years, how. She forsook, like Amy Carmichael, the great missionary of old, that pursuit of that relationship and pursued the Lord, and they went on to do great things. So in Amy Carmichael's case, she rescued all those girls that were in sex trafficking back in her day and rescued them. And in... Sarah Yardley's case, she plans all these wonderful events and outreaches all over Europe and has been an inspiration to so many people and led many people to the Lord through her ministry and even her knowledge of God's word and all these things. And she, of the famous Yardley family, you know, Moongoat Coffee, that's her brother's business, David. Her grandfather's in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Her brother hit the game-winning shots to win CIF for Calvary last week, their first major CIF title in like 20 years for anything like that. So the Yardley family is amazing, and Sarah Yardley is the oldest, and she's been serving the Lord single in love with Jesus. Jesus is her first love for years. She used to go to worship generation back in 2001 when we had Jeremy Camp. She'd be near the front row at that time, obviously 20 years younger, right? So we give these examples. So we're not limiting tonight's message to you're married and you're a baby boomer or a Gen Xer. It is broader. We have younger people here, so you need to understand it's If you're single, you're married to the Lord. And the one that's married to the Lord is concerned about the Lord first. The one that's married is concerned about their spouse first. Even though the Lord's first, you're still concerned about your spouse. And that's important to understand. So when a man takes a wife and marries her, that's a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing that God's designed. The natural affection of the man for the woman and the woman for the man and the family unit Preserving it. And of course, the family unit is perpetually being attacked by the devil through redefinition of families we've seen in the last 20 years, but also divorce itself is super destructive to the family unit, which we'll see in a moment as well. But as we look at this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, that's the natural thing because God said for all men, unless otherwise indicated as the Lord would lead you, that the man is incomplete and there's a suitable helper, and your wife becomes your helper because, ladies, we all know the sons of Adam, if they need anything, they need help, right? Okay, so I know I do. Now, with that in mind, I want to read to you the text from Ephesians because we know it's a natural thing for a man to marry a woman and a woman to marry a man and then to be together and share the human journey and have a family and those types of things as the Lord would lead them. So that's a human experience that all cultures have recognized in human history, pretty much regardless of creed, religion, or whatever even like atheistic, agnostic worldviews like communism. Communists still get married, and in China they have one child. The state raises them, but they still get married and have one child. And it's honorable to be married, and it's dishonorable to be unfaithful in that marriage in almost every society in human history. But for us in the Church of Jesus Christ, marriage is extra special because we get the bonus on this. It's not just a natural affection. It's not just a, a natural mental engagement or emotional engagement that marriage is meant to be and a sharing of the journey but it's much deeper than that for the body of Christ and people two people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ we see in Ephesians chapter 5 where the Holy Spirit was leading Paul the apostle to write these things speaking of marriage he said in verse 22 concerning Christian marriage so people who say they've given their life to Christ this is the Christian marriage which I know most of you so you understand the context wives Submit your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. That is, Christ is the Savior of the body, which is the church. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. I recently did a marriage ceremony, first one in a while, for a congregant of our church. And the woman said, make sure you add to it that I submit to my husband as unto the Lord. I've had many women tell me, take that out of the vows, but that's the first time in a long time many women told me, make sure that is in the vows because we want to honor the Lord. And so it was. Therefore, verse 24, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify her or set her apart and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, the word of God, that is. That he might present her, that is the church, to himself, Christ, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. And this is what the church will be when Christ comes for his church and we're all in glory in the next dimension through our faith in him and the righteousness that he imputes to our account because of who he is and what he did for us and us believing in it. That's important to understand. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That idea being that Eve came from Adam. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. This is the Lord does the church for we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So that's, of course, the Genesis two twenty-four verse that Jesus quoted. On the divorce text from Deuteronomy, which we saw him quote, the Pharisees quote to him, he quotes this same verse that Paul's quoting for the foundation of marriage. So i read it again, verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So again, using Jack as an example, him and Hannah are coming together in marriage in 15 days, and they become one, and God identifies them as one, no longer two separate, and they're in a covenant with each other and with the Lord. And Paul would say, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So, see, for the body of Christ, the Christian marriage, the husband represents Christ, and he shows the love to his wife like he shows Christ shows for the church dying, dying for us. And then the wife shows the submission and the trust in the head, the husband, even as we trust in Jesus as our head. That's the example. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's a shorter version of the same passage that is in Colossians as well. So now we see for the body of Christ, and we are the body of Christ here, most of us if we give our life to Christ in Christian marriage, that while it's very honorable in the world for a man and a woman in any society of any religious persuasion or world philosophy to be married And true to each other, that's honorable, and that's certainly pleasing to the Lord, it is not multidimensional. Because for the Christian marriage, we get something so much more than that. We become an example of the gospel itself in our marriage. Our marriages are designed to be an example of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. So the Christian marriage, where there's a sincere believer, both for the husband and the wife, as they go through their journey together, and if they have children, to their children, and to the grandchildren to have grandchildren, to their neighbors, to their co-workers, to their journey in life, to their extended relatives, their parents that are above them until they step into eternity, to the adult siblings that are around them, they become an example that when your relatives and people that really know you see how you treat your wife as a man, they see Christ dying for the church. They see the gospel lived out in the husband. And then in the wives, they see the wives representing the church, how they trust. How we trust Christ to lead our life, to lead our decisions to sell a house or buy a house, to live in California or move out of state, to take this job or not take that job, to go to this college or not go to that college, to commit to this relationship in marriage or to not commit to this relationship. They see the same thing because, see, we acknowledge the Lord because Jesus is our chief shepherd. And Jesus said, my sheep, hear me, hear my voice and follow me. So if we say that the Lord's guiding our personal lives and we're trusting Jesus, we say all the time, like, I'm trusting in Jesus, I'm believing in Jesus, those type of things, then people should be able to see from the wife a woman that's truly trusting in Jesus as she submits to and respects her husband. So ladies, you get to show the world what a trusting believer looks like when you respect and honor and trust your husband as a spiritual leader. And husbands, we get to show the world what the Savior looks like on the cross with unconditional love. Because by this we know love that Christ died for us. That's the definition. We get to show the world John 3.16, husbands. And wives, you get to show the world Acts 2.42, the day of Pentecost, with the church being the church. That's what we get to do. Now, there's no... The Jews at the Western Wall don't get to do that. Now, in the Mosaic Covenant, the Jewish nation was referred to as God's wife, but generally the negative as being an adulterous wife through the prophets. If you know your Old Testament, you know that. Any world religion, any human philosophy, it can't it can't represent that. You realize tonight Christian marriages in this church and in the body of Christ or at Calvary, you know, beachside tomorrow, uh, Refuge tomorrow, Calvary Chapel of the Harbor, all the believers at Rick Warren's church, just Greg glory, Orange County, Harvest, whatever, like whatever it is, wherever the, you know, the people here tomorrow at Shoreline Baptist, those Christian marriages, we have the privilege and the opportunity to show the world the gospel and the church trusting in Jesus as the head. There's no one else that gets to do that. They don't get to do that. So it's a blessing, it's a stewardship, and it's a glorious thing. So we say, when a man takes a wife and marries her, that's a beautiful thing in Jesus' name. And we get to share this journey. Now, some of you, again, are sharing this journey right now. Some of you uh, are widowed or have been divorced, whether by your choice or other people's choices. We can't change that. So remember, a single person is married to Jesus. So you're still married. So what if you're single or divorced, and what you'd want to show the Lord, you're married to the Lord, so show him. Show him like Sarah Yardley in England. Show them like, you know, Ross Erskine or Matt Erickson used to. Show them. Show the Lord. Show the Lord. Because see, I can wake up and be a better husband, and my wife could maybe wake up and be a better wife to fulfill these roles. But if you're single and you can't change things, you can still show the Lord that you're serious to be the best version of what you are tomorrow, tonight. That's what we can do. Because we're alive. There's a plan to go forward. We can never change what's done. So we have a type. And so husbands love our wives like Christ loves the church. And wives submit to, respect our husbands as the church submits to and respects Christ. That is our stewardship. What the rest of this wacky world wants to do outside these doors, that's their business. We're not going to give an account for how people define marriage or justify how they live their life. We're going to give an account for how we lived out our role to love our wives, as Christ loves the church, and as we submit it to our husbands as unto the Lord. That's what we're going to give an account for. So don't let anything else concern you. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Yeah, and it's not a concern, it's a joy, it's a privilege. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Now, the second thing we see is the issue of divorce. This is God's law, of course, and if the if, if there's something perfect that could save us, it's God's law. We know that. The law is always good. Jesus fulfilled the law. And so we're not under the law, per se. Like, we're not going to keep this and go to heaven because we kept this, but we don't discard it either because the law is lawful and it's good, it's true, it's just and holy. But it's not going to save us and get us to heaven. But it's going to guide us in truth and certainly principles of things that are truth for all scriptures inspired and God-breathed for our benefit, for instruction, training, correction, and reproof, that we can be thoroughly equipped. In their context, with divorce, When the husband or the wife put away their spouse, they had the right to certificate, so that's a legal document, like a legal document divorce, put it in the hand of the spouse and send them out. Now, this is serious, right? Like, this is so serious. For me, I I didn't show this Tuesday, but becoming the steward of my mom's resources and the steward of my dad's resources, so when you clean out the the bank lockbox or whatever, or when, you know, dad goes into assisted living and you have all the family photo albums from the previous generations and all these documents. There in my dad's documents was the divorce certificate from my mom and dad getting divorced. And it was with important documents. And then my mom had an envelope in a box I'd never seen before. She knew I'd find it after she passed away. All these things I'd never seen before that were beautiful and awesome. But she knew I'd find the envelope with the documents that were important. That, and there was a copy of the divorce, certificate of divorce, for my parents when they got divorced in 1976, when I was 16. And I think how serious those those documents were. They were so serious to my dad and my mom. My dad had to move out. He moved to Vista and lived in the valley. And my mom grieved for years, but it's hard to say, like we always say, we don't know who divorced to. We just don't know who divorced to. But my mom determined when my dad got out of the Marine Corps that, she, that the marriage was over. She was going to stay with my dad through 20 years career Marine, 22 years career Marine, Vietnam War, everything else, Cuban Missile Crisis, all of it. But when he got out of the Marine Corps, that was it. And that's the way it played out. And my mom's in eternity, and my dad's in assisted living at 91. And I've got both copies of the divorce. My mom's and my dad's. God wanted it to be hard to, to divorce. He didn't want you to like, send it through a friend of a friend or your, your, your buddy or whatever, your lawyer. He made you hand that certificate of divorce to the person that you said you'd love for better, for worse, in sickness and health, for richer, for poor till death do you part. He made you hand him that and face that reality. Not a Dear John letter, but hand them that divorce to make it final. So not only is it legal and binding, but you had to hand it to him So that would be a restraint, right? Because sometimes a lot of people are like, I just can't do that. Right, so don't. And give it one more chance to make this marriage work. Go back to score one and see what you can do. Our society, you can send it through a lawyer or various other means, and we we get that. So it was a serious thing. There was a certificate. You had to serve it. As I mentioned, it was never commanded... It was permitted, but it was never commanded. And the woman could, by Jesus' account, give the divorce as well. Now, it's said here in, in the text of Deuteronomy if he finds an uncleanness in her. So the, the Pharisees had this idea well, uncleanness can mean anything. What could be uncleanness? I mean, if you read the book of Leviticus, there's a lot of uncleanness, literally. From leprosy to bodily discharge to touching dead bodies. Like, what what uncleanness are we talking about here? Like, the one-day uncleanness, the seven-day uncleanness? Like, what are we talking about here? Well, the beauty is Jesus interpreted this for us. The uncleanness is sexual immorality. Isn't it nice that he gives us the interpretation that it's not this big, broad thing of uncleanness. Like, well, there's uncleanness categories A, B, C, D, and F. There's, you know, Roman numeral 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 under category B of uncleanness. You look it up in the journal. No, uncleanness is sexual immorality. Jesus, quote, end quote. So we don't get lost. And divorce is not commanded. It's permitted under those circumstances. And he said to the Pharisees, because of the hardness of your heart. So there'd be hardness of heart, that would have someone be committed adultery. And the heart's deceitfully wicked, and who can know it? We don't even know it ourselves, like David said. And when someone feels hurt by someone that's been unfaithful, they, might for, they need to forgive, but they might harden their heart where they're not going to take them back, and that's understandable. It's totally permitted. Sin hardens our heart. The one who commits sins and the victims of sin. It's hard. Here with adultery, the heart can be hard, but obviously we understand that people might commit adultery because if if they're not getting, I'm not defending it, but they're not getting love and affection, they're being physically abused. It's very understandable, and I've been in ministry 33 years, and I've seen a lot, where a woman might take refuge with someone else because she's abused and mistreated by her husband. Those things can happen. It's understandable, but not excusable. But sexual morality is it. But God God knows all the fuzzy gray areas, too. He knows everything. There's nothing spoken, thought, said, or done that's not revealed on the day of Christ Jesus. All thoughts and even the intents of our hearts will be revealed before the throne of God. But uncleanness is sexual morality. That's the uncleanness. So that's the reason permitted for divorce. And sometimes, you know, of course, hard hearts lead to unfaithfulness. And hard hearts might not be willing to let that go for reconciliation. And that's understandable. And that's a choice. And not only that, you might forgive someone and not want to be reconciled to them. And that's not a hard heart. That's, that's, that's you protecting yourself and even your children sometimes. The Lord knows. But sin always hardens the heart. Know that. So let's just make sure in any situation like this that our hearts are not hardened and we've forgiven as best we can and we've gone forward. Because no matter what, we've got to forgive. The three great equities of life— purity before the Lord, grow through tribulation and forgiveness of other people. Those three things are the equities of eternity in the realm of time. It is what it is. And one final thought on divorce I need to bring up is from Malachi chapter 3. In Malachi chapter 3, God says why he hates divorce. So let me read this to you. Excuse me, Malachi chapter 2. It's Malachi chapter 2, verse 13, if you want to reference God's an indictment against the nation of Israel about 400 B.C. And he says this, and this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did He not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why One. He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So that's why God hates divorce. It stumbles kids, it affects the next generation. And we all know statistics show that where there's divorced children, the odds for divorce are much higher than they not come from divorced families. But I will say this in the context of Malachi, he's talking to men. He's talking to men. Now that principle would carry over to women, but he's talking to men about dealing treacherously with their wives. And he hates divorce because they're meant to be one, not torn apart. And he hates divorce because it stumbles the children, which is a whole other Bible study. But God hates divorce. That through the prophet Malachi in God's word. So now we come back to more good news. So we've covered a positive and a negative, and these are human realities. I would just say this moving on to this third and final point, that where there's been divorce, there needs to be forgiveness. And however things can be made right, we make them right. And what I've often told people when they've been divorced look, you may not be their husband anymore or their wife anymore, but you're still the parent of your children. And you're going to always be the parents of those children. And you're going to always have the stewardship to do your best to raise those children unto the Lord. So instead of focusing on what's not going on, you need to focus on what is going on. So if you're not the wife anymore, you're not the husband anymore, just know this, you are still the parent of those children. And I tell people to get divorced all the time because I've been there all these weddings where this stuff goes down and funerals. Let me tell you, it goes down. Where people get excluded from wedding days or they show up and everyone's just in terror of how it's going to play out, that people can get along. And God, it can be so far-reaching. I tell people, especially with kids, you're never truly divorced because you're yoked through those kids. And there's going to be wedding days, there's going to be high school graduations, college graduations, and you and your significant other and this stuff. You're going to have to show up and hang out together. And let me tell you, I've been at those weddings where your bitterness from years past hinders the joy of the young people on this day. So when you keep that in mind, for all that you know, pray for peace, for blessing of the peacemakers, and that where these things have happened, they don't take away from the opportunities for the next generation and those that are choosing to go forward with the Lord. Amen? Finally, I love verse 5. When a man has taken a new wife, there we go again, Whew, back to the man getting his wife. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business he shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife, whom he has taken. Ladies, don't you just love that? Like, I love this. Like, the, the, the wife could go to her wedding day knowing that for the first year of marriage, that husband has one, one primary responsibility for his existence on planet Earth to bring his wife happiness. Isn't that lovely? So, God, what's my task today? Bring your wife happiness. Well, how? Well, go figure it out. Go talk to her. Find out what made her unhappy yesterday so you don't repeat it today. Find out what makes her happy and unhappy. And by default, when you figure out what makes her unhappy, you know, don't do it again, son of Adam. You know, like, that's it. Men always are ready for their next fight. We're exempt from battle even men that are peacemakers they're still up for a rumble sometimes and men always have a plan to build something like Solomon men are builders they even if they stay home in the basement play video games all day they still want to be king of their video game that they're playing with everybody else around the country at the same time like men want to rule and reign they want to be great they want to be builders so men they're ready for fighting and they're ready to build And there's always another war, there's always another conflict, there's always another business model, another business plan. That's the reality of the human experience. What is human history? Men fighting and men building. And after they built, they fight and tear down what was built and then they build again and then they fight again. And your borders move this way and they move that way and these people are absorbed by these people and annexed by those people. That's what men do. So God's like doing everyone a favor, the, the man and the woman saying, look, you're not going to fight or build for a year. You're going to learn how to bring your wife happiness so you too truly can live happily ever after. And if you learn how to bring your wife happiness in the first year, your odds go way up that you're going to live a wonderful, fruitful life in a joyful marriage. Amongst stuff that I've inherited from my parents that I steward of newspaper articles, scrapbooks, and photo albums, and all this stuff... I've opened up some new boxes lately I hadn't really even opened up. They've been in the shed, but the shed's gone now, so everything's getting out. And if you either make the cut, it's either the trash bin, our trash bin, our shoreline trash bin, bigger bin, goodwill drop off, or you made the cut. But nothing's in bins anymore. Like, those days are gone. We don't have the shed anymore, to put it. And if if it belongs to our kids, come and get it. Your board bag, your box, your snow boots, all that kind of stuff, T-t-t-t-t, come get it. What are you gonna do? You do what you want with it. And I thought, you know, my mom did this to me 25 years ago. And now I realize why well, she did it. Like, and now I'm like, I'm like my mom, I'm 60 i all my kids, come get your kindergarten artwork, your little league uniform and hat, your skateboard trophy, or I'll drive it to Florida. But we got 1,100 square foot in Huntington Beach feet to live in and we don't have the space. But in going through the bins there, I find this gold-plated plate 50-year anniversary of my grandparents, my dad's parents. I did their 60th wedding anniversary at Calvary Vista the first year I was in ministry. If you get the first year right, there's a good chance you'll get the 50 or 60. There's a good chance. And I'm going through photo albums, and there's Fred and Esther. I, see what the, I, saw, I can look at what they do when they're 70. When they're 70, you know, he served in World War II two and a half years his Iwo Jima dog tags right here, Iwo Jima people. He was gone from my, mother, my grandmother for two and a half years. I got a book this thick of every love letter he wrote to her from the battlefront in the South Pacific. And I've got the photo album when they were just two little people like with their camping, you know, like the Sprinter van style, but back in the 70s style, where they went to Gettysburg and Jamestown and Plymouth Rock. They went and saw our country's history, and there they are like... It's awesome. If you get the first year right, you might just get Plymouth Rock in your 55th year with your wife and enjoying the, the good fruit of your hard labor. Or even if you got married later on, like the couple that we married a couple weeks ago, they're like, you know what he, uh, What Frank said to Jennifer? He's like, hey, you want to live till we die? Sure. Because they love each other. They love the Lord. They're so loud. He's like, you want to die with me? Yeah, I do actually. I do. If you get the first year right, you probably get everything else right. But if you don't get the first year right, it may may never happen. See what you learn in the first year, and this is affirmed the New Testament. Now I read to you from 1 Peter chapter three. When Peter was writing about marriage, and he, you know, he was married. So he, you know, Paul's like from the Holy Spirit, but Peter, we know for sure, was married. And it says this, Peter, the Holy Spirit through Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 3. Speaking of marriage, I'm talking about a happy marriage, living 50, 60 years, where there's a gold-plated thing that you pass on to your grandkids when you're long gone. It ends up in their closet in 2081 or something, okay? Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear or reverence, do not let your adornment be merely outward, a of the hair, wearing gold, and putting on fine apparel— Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror or fear. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. So when we think about that first year of marriage where the husband learns to dwell with his wife of understanding, the wife is presenting herself to her husband as a beautiful, chaste woman, a woman of God. And though she might have the outward beauty and present outward beauty with these various things, The real beauty is the hidden person of the heart, that godly woman that just loves the Lord. There's a beauty, and that beauty transcends the aging, the outward aging process. It reflects from the heart, and you see the the countenance in the eyes, and you see beauty. You young people, I had the strangest dream a week ago. It was so real, and maybe older people can relate. I dreamed I was young. I've never dreamed that I was young. It was really strange. I was young. And in the dream, I'm like, hey, I must be dreaming because I'm young. You know, I was like, I'm young. I'm like, wow, I'm young. Like, wow, I'm young. I'm young. Wow, this is crazy. Wow. And then I woke up. I said, I'm not young. I'm old. (laughs) I'm not 25. I'm 60. And I don't look like I looked when I was 25. I look like I look when I'm 60. So my beauty has to be an inward beauty because we're told that we're, we're being transformed from glory to glory as in a mirror dimly. Though the outward man's perishing, the inward man's being renewed daily through faith in Christ. So the life of the Holy Spirit is making me more beautiful in the countenance of my eyes because the eyes are, are the lamp to the soul. So I can give my wife greater beauty, she can give me greater beauty as we grow in the Lord and they see the love of the Lord and the compassion and the mercy and the love and the empathy and the tenderness and the gentleness. That's, that's what, though the outward man's perishing, that's what's, that's what's coming forth. I wanna be the nicest, I wanna be the nicest old guy ever riding a little trike bike down my street. Because my grandparents had those trike bikes back in the 70s, you know, the three big three wheelers. I'm like, who rides that? Now when you're 60, you're like, I can see that working. By the time we get there, mine will be electric too, so it'll be even more fun. <laughs> and they can't take my license away for that. How dangerous can you be an electric bike, truck bike that goes 15 miles an hour on a flat street somewhere? So back to that first year and marriage the way it's meant to be, that the woman's beauty is a hidden person of the heart because the outward beauty is going to fade, ladies, and we understand that. And men, are we're strong like this, but eventually we're old like David and we need... Somebody to keep us warm in bed. We also see that the women trusted in God. So when we think about that first year, what the woman learns is that her beauty is inward beauty. And she's, she's like Sarah in the Old Testament. Like she's beautiful, like inwardly. She's a woman of faith because Sarah's in Hebrews 11 for the hall of faith. But then the man, he gives honor to his wife when we say the weaker vessel it's not weaker in the more like it's feminine and masculinity that's the distinction it's not like weaker physically mentally emotionally whatever it's just like more tender more fragile more sensitive i'm glad we're not like i'm glad i'm the only bull in the china shop and my wife's able to keep me from knocking over all the china it's just tender the beauty and being heirs together of the grace of life. That's what Christian marriage is, is to be heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So men, we know our prayers can be hindered if we don't dwell with them with understanding. So when we think about our wives, that first year we learned to dwell with them, we're to bring them happiness. So this is the same thing here in 1 Peter. If you're bringing your wife happiness, you're going to dwell with her with understanding. But the idea is not limited to one year, like, okay, I did my one-year time, like like a... conscription, like in the military for three years. I did three years military time during the Vietnam War. I'm free from, you know, joining and understanding and honoring my wife as the weaker vessel. No, you're not. That's what you learn to do, so you do it the rest of your life. You learn to do it in the first year, so you get it right, so you can build on that foundation and be a better version each year. A new, better version of what the godly husband is meant to be. A new, better version of what the godly wife is meant to be. And if you're single, a new better version of what the person who's married to Jesus is meant to be. Amen? This is marriage the way God's designed it for humanity and specifically for those who call themselves disciples of Jesus Christ.